Hello, I'm Greg Mead, this week's host of Sri Ponya's One Breath Podcast. It is our intention and our prayer to engage in powerful and intimate conversations with people many of us may consider or even refer to as ordinary. But I assure you, as you listen today, you will experience a human being that is anything but ordinary. In fact, they are extraordinary. Extraordinary in their courage, extraordinary in their love, extraordinary in their intention and purposefulness to live as a gift to you and to me. So please attune your heart, attune your ears, and listen. And I assure you, I am almost certain that you will not be disappointed. I think we're ready to go. Great. <laughs> Good morning, Rita. <laughs> morning, Greg. How are, how are you? Um, today, I'm feeling really good. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. It's not always like that, but this morning has been going pretty well for mm. me. Mm. Yeah. So, um, I am with my friend Rita. We've known one another for five Four, 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 four years and change. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I moved, I moved to uh, Bend in October of 2018. Wow. And I think I met you not long after that. No, because I entered the rooms of recovery in September of that year. No kidding. So you were just there a month? Yeah. Oh, Yeah, man. I think that's right. 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. Yep. It'll be my fifth year of recovery wow. this year. Yeah. So what has been the biggest gift that you've received from, from like finding your way into sobriety and recovery? Mm. Let's there... just, let's just start with the big <laughs> question. <laughs> I was like, there's so many gifts. Yeah. Um, but the gift that I feel like is most present in my life right now is that I get the opportunity to live the life that I never could have imagined. Mm. Um, because my recovery, what my my use and the way that it affected my life was so all-encompassing that I was unable to see the possibility of a life outside of like what I was currently living in hmm. and before <clears throat> before I got sober I mean my life was on the surface going okay mm -hmm. um from a like on paper standpoint I was able to you know hold down a job I was able to interact with folks for really short amounts of time um but my personal and spiritual fulfillment was dead and like I couldn't imagine having a partner. I couldn't imagine having children. I couldn't imagine like living in a home independently or supporting like anyone outside of like my professional role in a really structured and sterile way. Mm. Um, so recovery has given me the opportunity to fill in the lines and the color in my life so that I 
can bring that richness and depth to everyone that I interact mm. with. And it's not dependent upon um, my professional capacity or my what I'm supposed to do. I'm able to navigate my own values and my own purpose and calling in life and bring that forward and discern um, in the moment. And yeah, all of that was not even a like a little sparkling thought before mm -hmm. I was in recovery. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know about you, but prior to getting sober, I always had really grand ideas about the person I was going to be mm -hmm. and all the incredible things I was going to do. Yeah. Can you relate to that? Yeah, I really can because I just thought that like one thing in my life would shift and then it would just be like, oh, well now I like can't have a partner. I can have kids. I can do all of these things. And I tried to do all of those things and they just skirted around getting sober. It was just like anything but. Yeah. And so I was like, I was like, oh yeah, I'm definitely gonna whatever, open my business or I'm definitely going to, you know, get the promotion at work. Um, if I just, I don't know. Um, some of them were like really simple. Like I was like, I'm going to meditate every day or I'm going to do blah, blah, blah. But it was never like mm -hmm. take substances out of my life. Mm -hmm. And then once I did that, I did all of the things that I said I was going to do hmm. um, over time, obviously. Yeah. And still continue to strive towards, towards the things I don't know yet. That's the beautiful thing about where we're at. There's so much. Yeah. Yeah. You and I have a few decades chronologically apart in age. Yeah. But I still feel like I, oh. I'm, I'm thrilled with what I don't know yet. <laughs> I feel like the thing that I wish someone, no, I probably couldn't hear it. But what I know as I progress chronologically is that you actually know less. Mm. And it's more about trusting. Wow. Explain that. That's, I mean, do you, are you conscious of that as you're walking through your day? Um, it really, it really depends on my mood. Yeah. And the day. Yeah, yeah. And the day. And what time, and what time is it? <laughs> yeah. Cause I, when I say, yeah, when I say that I know, I know less is that, um, kind of embracing the world with curiosity actually relieves me of the fear of control like the fear and the controlling tendencies mm -hmm. um that are like from you know my childhood and also from like a decade and a half of extensive substance use mm -hmm. um or about a like a decade and some change uh because i the uncertainty before I got sober meant that I was going to feel deprived or that I felt like um, my like whole day or my whole experience would end in some way, shape or form, whether it was like I wasn't going to be able to like get drunk or get high that day or I wasn't going to get paid or just like it felt like limiting or barriers. And now when I know less or the world changes, depending on my mood and my openness of that yeah. day, I get to explore other possibilities and I don't feel limited by things changing mm. or 
I am less likely to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Today I feel that way. Tomo- yesterday I didn't feel yeah. that way. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's some ease mm. in not knowing now because you get to, I feel like as you progress like in life chronologically older or I don't even know what to call right. it. Um, you have so much data of what has happened before. So it's like, oh, well, I survived all of those things. Mm. Well, I navigated all of these things. I, I have lived a lot of my life full. And so there's ease and comfort and peace in that, um, which was difficult to see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, like yesterday, one of the one of the gifts that comes with sobriety and recovery and not just putting the substance, not not just removing the substance, but moving into emotional sobriety. For me, when I have a day like you had yesterday, I'm able to move through that day knowing, you know, as the old adage goes, this too shall pass. Yeah. You know, I don't have to. I don't have to step into a destructive behavior um, or pick up a substance again in order to like stop the confusion or stop the the discomfort that I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. I am um, able to, sometimes it's, I sit down and hang on. <laughs> yep. That's what I've got available to me. Mm-hmm. And other times, you know, I'm pretty zen moving through difficult situations. And, um, you know, this weekend was one where it was sit down, hang on, yeah. moving through some really uncomfortable stuff. And, uh, but the gift and the grace that, that I've been given and that I know you've been given just knowing you, uh, like I do that those, those days or even a couple of days strung together are okay. And I'm okay in those in those moments. And that's a huge shift mm-hmm. from yeah. from when I was using because everything, everything was the end of the world. Yeah. The apocalypse was about to begin. Every day. <laughs> Every day. Yeah. yeah. Particularly toward the end. Yeah. Yeah. What what brought you, what was that moment of clarity for you when you when you like came to, wow, this is just not even who I am. It's certainly not who I want to be. Before answering that question, I love kind of what you said about like holding on. Mm-hmm. Um, and like in, in my experience, I'm holding on and I am not okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. um, and that like in recovery specifically, it has helped me build compassion with myself about not being okay. Mm. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, it's not like pretty, like when I'm not okay. Because I think like when we talk about recovery, not being okay is like an inherent part of recovery because there was this thing that was in a lot of ways our medicine are keeping us alive. Yeah. It's now not in our life at all. Right. And so even after a few years of recovery, I can say, 
when I'm not okay, it's not pretty, but I do know and trust that I will survive until yeah these moments pass or yeah. this day passes or this event passes. And I just want to put that, that plug in for any of the folks that are listening who like are earlier on in recovery that it's okay for it to not look okay, not mm-hmm. look good and not be okay. Right. And that, yeah, surviving through it is maybe your, your only tool. Yeah. And I, you know, that's probably more my truth as well, <laughs> yeah. because when I'm hanging, if I'm having a day that I'm hanging on, I don't feel okay. <laughs> I do have enough, I do have enough history mm-hmm. to begin to, I, I can have some at least conscious thoughts in moments of knowing yeah. that I'm going to, that I'll come out the other side. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right. I, I think it would be more, uh, yeah, more, I, I would be more aligned with, I'm not okay right now. Yeah. And, and, and then hang on. Yep, exactly. <laughs> so I think that's right too, because it certainly gives me so much more compassion for myself. And then, you know, it also gives me so much more compassion for, you know, the people that I get to, the, the men primarily that I get to work with, mm-hmm. uh, as they begin yeah. and are on their journey of recovery. Mm. offer some hope you know what an important like gift that you get to give to Mm -hmm. like individuals who are socialized to like not not look at so many parts of themselves Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um and your question greg was kind of what when when was my turning point yeah what (laughs) Do you, do you remember like the moment or the day that I do? Yeah. So do I, <laughs> I do remember, I, you know, there are lots of us, I think that have that moment that yeah. will be etched, you yeah. know, forever. Well, I, I think it's a series of moments and they're pretty spread out. Um, which for anyone who is just, you know, coming off of substances, my suggestion would be create and build a structure as quickly as possible because that's not what I did and Mm. it kept me in a lot of pain for a long time that I didn't have to be in Mm -hmm. um but my first moment was sitting hungover feeling like a like a piece of shit on my therapist's couch one Tuesday morning and crying to her and Mm. telling her that I like I can't control my drinking yeah like no matter what I did, like I was watching, I had watched substances destroy like my family of origin. Mm. I had I had been in relationship with people who were alcoholic, and watched that destroy our romantic relationships. I knew I knew and know friends who are still out drinking and using substances in a really unhealthy, unbalanced way, and so I had like seen it all. I had seen folks die um, from substances, and I and I still couldn't like admit it in myself. And in that moment, I could. I was mm. just like, I can't control mm. this at all. Other folks can, and I cannot. 
because I had like walked into a bar the night before like just to meet up with some friends and have one drink (laughs) and like I would have put all of my money (laughs) and all of my experience on literally walking into that bar and having one drink yeah and I would have told you I would have told you like in your face and fully believed that I was going to have one beer that night yeah and I did not (laughs) yeah um and I didn't really have this huge um nothing like terrible happened that night there are things that like I regret happening but nothing that really I mean I think it more harmed my spirit (laughs) my spirit Mm. and the compassion for myself because I really I just really like felt betrayed by myself and my body wow because I was like this I this is not how I want to live this isn't in the values that I say that I live live in I don't feel like a person of integrity on so many levels professionally personally with the folks I was spending time with it was such a huge like that evening I just really stopped spending time with all of them because I felt really embarrassed and shameful about Mm. how I had acted Um, so that kind of all got downloaded on me and I was like I don't know what to do Mm. and she just very point blank looked at me and she's like I think you need to go to a meeting (laughs) wow had you ever considered that before? not for myself (laughs) not for myself of course (laughs) because like because I had been to meetings before because I have folks in my family who are in recovery so I had been to meetings yeah I had some exposure to like the support groups of those meetings and so I'd done I I understood and had been exposed to the premise um but had never been there for myself and so that weekend I went to my first meeting for myself. So I would guess that that morning, that Tuesday morning, you sat with your therapist. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the first time you you had those thoughts of, wow, I can't control this. Oh, no. You had had those thoughts before. What? You know, I'm still baffled sometimes by what that... Why was that moment different for you than all of the other moments of, and all of the other mornings of waking up with the same kind of, what do we call it in, in 12 step, uh, uh, incomprehensible demoralization. Yeah. Why was that morning different? What happened? Do you, do you know? I think I hit for me I think I hit a level of emotional maturity somehow (laughs) like it all clicked yeah okay um I think for me I started to truly understand what it what the meaning of integrity and honesty meant Mm mm-hmm Not that it was like infused in my body or something that I was able to embody, Mm -hmm. but I was starting to understand what, um, what it meant cognitively. My brain had gotten there. (laughs) Yeah. Because I think there had been much worse. I had, I had many, I have many, many terrible experiences with substances. Yeah. Um, which those should have been 
the wake-up calls. I think a huge part of it also was, um, you know, we talk about like changing the folks that were around. Mm -hmm. And I had like started that process just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I had, um, I had like started practicing yoga pretty regularly and like attempting meditation. (laughs) and so like just the folks that I was seeing on a more regular basis like we're not showing up to the yoga class hungover every morning (laughs) um and when they spoke about they spoke about like peace and serenity and they weren't they weren't some of them were in recovery and some of them weren't um but I started to see around me like what I wanted And then prior to that, the folks that I was surrounded with were a lot of folks who were doing similar things to me or what I perceived as similar things. I wonder if I could go back in time if I looked at them that they were drinking normally and I was not. But by the time that I knew that I wasn't drinking normally, I was so drunk that I couldn't tell that they were like cutting themselves off or giving me a ride home or whatever, whatever. But at that point, I couldn't really comprehend. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is amazing that there's that level of not being conscious. Yeah. In aware. That's, um, I'm really grateful and it's also really heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. I think about so many of the folks that I interacted with before, you know, before getting sober and... Mm-hmm. I was not like the greatest person to be around. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, there were nights that I got to be the life of the party. Yep. And then there were, <laughs> yep. Then, then something inhabited my body. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and I was not pleasant to be around. No. Yeah. Yeah. I, re- I would, I remember mornings where I would wake up and I was married at the time when I, to, right toward the end. And, and I remember, uh, waiting to see if, Mm. if my wife was going to be talking with me. Like, yeah. Because I couldn't remember the night before. Yeah. The hangover anxiety is so real. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, oh my God. So yeah, it, it is amazing that that moment that you had in your therapist's office transcended, transcended anything you had ever known up to that point. Yeah. And that, 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 you know, for the people that I've met in recovery, most of us, and I, I have one of those moments that it was so different. I woke up from drinking into a blackout Mm -hmm. and I had had a way of waking up every other morning, swearing that I wasn't ever going to do that again. And then something was so different that morning Mm. that, you know, I haven't had a drink since, you know, I haven't had, I haven't had a drug since. So those, I, I just refer to that as something showed up in the room for me that morning that I couldn't manufacture on my own. Yeah. Every other morning, you know, and I'm so grateful. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Well, since you've been sober 
you have been on, I, I didn't know what you did for a living, but you've taken on some stuff since you've been sober. I have. And would you mind exploring that with me? Because yeah. that's, that's some of the, that's some of the incredible, like awakening of, wow, I get to, what I could never consider having done, I find myself with the courage and the wherewithal to begin to create a life that I would have never, would have never contemplated even. Yeah. So what has been the, the biggest, the, the most significant uh, change or transformation that's occurred in your life? Um, and, and would have you ever been able to move into it prior to getting sober? Yeah. Um, I've, I have done a lot <laughs> since I got sober. Um, and I, when you were talking, Greg, I was like, what are like, what are the things? And I think like the three major, major things that have happened for me professionally, uh, is I became a yoga teacher. Mm. I was elected onto Ben city council and resigned uh, halfway through my term. Hmm. And I became a licensed therapist for the state of Oregon. Wow. So, and that's a lot. All yeah. of those things are a lot. <laughs> Together they are a lot. Yeah. While the entire world was navigating a global pandemic. Yeah, so. right. Uh, most transformative. I mean, I think they were all transformative in really different ways. Mm -hmm. I think... Hmm. So, the power of quitting city council was the most transformative. Mm -hmm. um, such a huge part of getting into recovery is being like in action and understanding and creating a brand new way of life. Um, and I did that very intensely. <laughs> I I'm a very determined person, and I do things very like very fully. And it's mm -hmm. it's a gift, and it can also be a really strong pathway to burnout. Mm. Um, and I say that from like my own experience, and I never want to um, assume that other folks like are having a similar experience to me. Right. Um, and so to be able to walk away from walk away and intentionally and integrally quit something that I had rallied many folks behind me, not behind me, but with me and raised a lot of money and also sat as a representation that the city of Bend had never seen at that level mm -hmm. um, was was so impactful, like doing that um, and learning and sharing and being a voice that was so necessary. And then in the same, like, and then just a few years later, quitting and walking away because I I felt like I couldn't see or feel myself anymore and that the pressure of the experience was killing me. Mm. 
and something that I'm told a lot and I've been told a lot in recovery is like we didn't get you know sober to be miserable and I it's such a gift to be able to have the experience of being elected and watching a community support me in a lot of ways and um, sitting on like city council was so impactful and important for my life and quitting was something that I did for myself Mm. and probably one of the most transformative things I've ever done for myself Mm. like I would compare it to getting sober seriously yeah did it require from from the standpoint of it requiring you really know who you are and this is the choice to make for your well-being and for your future yep wow what was would you mind would you mind sharing uh you know you said that you were bringing a voice Mm -hmm. to the city council that they that the city council and probably the city of bend publicly hadn't experienced Yeah. yeah um I mean, so many, but we, we kind of, I, I don't own a house in Bend, which uh, creates this housing instability that I felt like a lot of folks around me navigate every single day mm. and that we are one, you know, one paycheck or one decision away from not having a house. And that voice felt really important in the housing crisis that we're experiencing here in Oregon. Um, Being someone who's not white, that was Mm. not an experience um, that folks on city council had, like a city councilor, I was like one of the first non-white city councilors, being queer, um, being younger, (laughs) just like all of these different, and, and many others, I imagine. Um, but just having holding all of those identities and making a decision and using my voice from my lived experience um, brought a different perspective to city council. And I asked questions and encouraged, um, yeah, encouraged focus and thought in places and corners that city council had not acknowledged before or Mm. not maybe not maybe they've acknowledged it but just not embodying and grasping it Mm -hmm. um yeah were you were you able to bring things to the council that that there could have been solutions to problems that exist that you felt you you were dismissed or not listened to what 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 was your experience Mm. yeah um so the government is oppressive i i would agree with that even as a (laughs) even as a representative of almost you know i i represent Mm -hmm. the oppression the oppressor you know i'm sitting here with the with the red hair Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know in fact the the indigenous the native people in this country used to talk about the red beards. And mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm acutely aware yeah. of, 
of our of our past and even the psychology that still yeah. is unaddressed yeah so i so there's two parts yes i feel like city council and the representatives on city council could have listened focused uplifted and protected me more on city council mm. i wholeheartedly believe that um and they didn't and that's why i resigned it's a huge part of why i resigned and the entire sea of like city government and systems and paperwork and money and making folks feel like they're important um meaning like oh we have to work with like this specific like developer or we have to work with this specific individual and like maintaining relationships usually white men to white men Hmm. is um usually rich white men to other rich white men Mm -hmm. um to maintain the status quo which is killing a lot of folks here in bend specifically um and i mean that's i couldn't be part of that yeah which i part of me knew that when i got elected so i don't want to be like oh i didn't know and then I found out when I got there, I think I, I thought and truly believed that I was going to make more of an impact. And what I learned being inside of the government system is like being one person on a board of seven is not going to change anything. Hmm. That feels really cynical as I said it out loud. I do think that I changed things and I brought a perspective that had not been brought to city council before. And I do think that I represented a lot of folks who had never had a voice on city council before. Mm-hmm. And in the comment I just said, I can really feel how my body is still healing from that experience. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And that I'm still I'm still hurt and wounded in some ways. Mm. Yeah. I, you know, I, as I've witnessed your journey, I remember um, the the twelve step meeting that you and I frequented together, mm-hmm. and you were so quiet. You you rarely shared. You were so quiet, mm-hmm. and I've I've witnessed you become an incredibly courageous, powerful human being. And how have you done that? <laughs> how how the hell? You know, because what you've just <laughs> described, even though you chose, I mean, you wisely chose to care for yourself and step down from city council for you to sit there um, and, and take that on, that level of service with what you became acutely aware of how things operate. Um, where did that courage, where did that strength and power come from my ancestors seriously <laughs> yeah yeah 110 <laughs> percent um such a huge part of my my life and healing is from the the generations that made sure i made it here wow so i think that their courage continues and did inspire me and supported me in ways to be 
like who I am today. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of my personal work in recovery and in mental health had empowered me, did empower me. Support from the community. Like, I did not run alone. I ran on a team of like 10 people and mm. was regularly interacting with many like folks in the community. Like I don't I don't feel like I got elected like on my own. I don't feel yeah. like I sat on my own. I really like f- I felt like I was interacting with the community in some capacity at times more or less um with a lot of folks in Bend. Um And I mean, courage is just an ebbing and flowing thing because I was thinking about courage yesterday and I was like, is courage just pretending you're not afraid for like an hour? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a good one. (laughs) And then I was like, yeah, yeah, I think it is. And so I would, that's what I, so I've been kind of like, you know, practicing that. Yeah. Is pretending you're not afraid and. And then, you know, you rest and then you try again. And mm-hmm. I do feel, I do feel like I found my voice in a lot of ways. And a huge part of that was being really vulnerable at a group level mm. in recovery, but also in running for city council. Yeah. There were many times in both of the, both of those interactions where like I'm crying in front of 20, 50 people. Hmm. I, I think a huge, as we're kind of like talking about it more, kind of more awareness is coming to me. Um, I, my heart break, was broken and continually breaks that so many folks have to die because hmm. the system isn't getting what the system wants. And that, like, many souls are not on this earth anymore because of that. And that's such a huge part of me sourcing courage. Mm. Is because, like, if government means paperwork for you, what government means for me is, like, life or death. Mm. And, like, most folks with my experience will, like, echo that. And... And that's where my courage comes from. It's like saving, saving people's lives. Unpack that a little bit more. Can you? Yeah, I mean, like this. I mean, systems, systems overall were based on like certain folks being more important. And when you are not the most important folks in the room, like you lose out on resources, support. Um, focus in any way shape or form and because of that folks don't have the resources to live and so like we talk about like not having enough housing in bend and so folks die because it's cold Mm -hmm. and then we talk about like power and control with like police departments and people die and so when we're talking about like working in government or government reform and I, I choose neither of those at this point in my mm-hmm. life. Um, yeah, the, the power and control that the 
system continues to perpetuate and uphold means that folks die. Because, mm. like, people die because they didn't act appropriately at a traffic stop. And I was like, that person could have just, like, ran away. Like, meaning, like, the cops could have let that person just run away and then... What like what do the cops lose if that person runs away? <laughs> Sorry, yeah. we're getting like very off topic, but um, like the want and perceived need of power and control kills people. So I'm mystified, and I'm going to continue along this vein because I don't think we're off topic, Rita. I think, okay. uh, you know, we're living we're living in a culture in an environment these days where for the first time in a long, long time, addiction uh, is like it's the needle has moved. Oh yeah. In in the, it toward the word toward epidemic, oh, right? Yeah. So it's moved. The needle has moved regarding substance, self-destructive behaviors, yeah. patterns. Um, that 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 has to directly relate to what's occurring in our culture, yeah. and. You know, I said I'm mystified. Here's what I'm mystified about. There is a an acronym, mm-hmm. DEI, yeah, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yep, that everybody's talking about. Everybody has it in their mission statement or somewhere in their documentation. Yes. Why the hell isn't it being lived? What? what so, so we give. You know, we give a token acknowledgement that yeah there should be diversity equity and inclusion but the practice as you've experienced firsthand in government it really isn't occurring no it doesn't it doesn't ripple out into the real world no why (laughs) speak to it i just you know you've been there yeah um i think that human beings become really attached to otherness so what does that mean that that's a term that many of us may not be familiar with yeah that that folks who are experiencing or look differently um are not the same as us Mm. and in ways shapes and forms don't deserve the same rights or experiences as us Mm. and i mean like addiction's such a huge part like what you and I both know is like we were not ready to get clean and sober until we were ready. Yeah. So that doesn't make me have any less compassion for someone who's still drinking and using right now. Right? Like literally in this moment right now. Right. I don't feel other than them. I get okay, I get it. Yeah. Yeah, I, right. I don't feel yeah. any any other of them. <clears throat> and by that I get to have full compassion for them. Mm-hmm. And so, like, in government, like, we're talking about fentanyl killing people yeah. every single day. Yeah. And ugh, why couldn't they just get clean? Yeah, right. I, oh, God. I was like, Whew. yeah. Yeah. It's such a, it's an othering experience. It's like, well, I'm not, I'm not addicted to blah, blah, blah. Right. I'm not. Yeah. It, it makes the otherness yeah it makes me really mad <laughs> yeah i i sit on a 
a work, I sit in a work group, uh, with an organization here in town. Um, and we have conversations around the epidemic of fentanyl overdose and death. Yeah. Uh, we talk about, we talk about, um, like what are the greatest needs we have here in central Oregon? And there were three things that came up in one of our work, work groups. One was more detox beds, yeah. right, in Central Oregon, save lives, right? Other, the other one was more beds for uh, inpatient treatment, yeah, right. So those are those are for real. Those are in desperately short supply. The third was funding purchasing as much naloxone and Narcan as we possibly can and get it in the hands of as many people as we possibly can. So what do you suppose we chose? We chose that one because the, the, the urgency is so great that we don't have time to get more detox beds here. We don't have time to get people into inpatient treatment. Um, and it really is, I was, I was stunned. I, you know, even though I work in the, in the world of recovery and Jennifer and I and our board and the people that are supporting us, our, our hearts and souls are in the work of recovery and Mm -hmm. sharing experience, strength, and hope with lots of people, um, or as many people as we have the opportunity to. And yet there's such a sense of urgency and like emergency uh, that the best we could come up with for what's occurring out here in the streets is we got to buy a shit ton of Narcan. Yeah. And we've got to get it in the hands of people that will be able to administer it at the right time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I I just you know I I I'm I was so blind to the extent of the problem. Yeah. And you know there seems to be an uh, definitely an underserved population that's being impacted more than people living up on Aubrey Butte. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. I mean, it just kind of it goes back to the housing crisis and the capitalist views that like you have to be a certain way and have a certain type of job to not die from cold and fentanyl overdose. Mm. Hmm. Man, yeah, that. I don't even know how to formulate my next question. It's, I'm stunned. You know, I'm brought to the place of being speechless. Um, yeah, I think so much of understanding and working in systems um, is when you really break it down, it's about humans living or dying. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like, that's the most important part. Yeah. It's not anything else. 
so outside of the system how how do we move in the direction of accomplishing you know um saving people's lives i mean so many so many things yeah yeah i mean in in the recovery sense i do like agree i think it's really important that folks have narcan on them all mm -hmm. the time and especially the folks that are doing like street outreach right now in central oregon right. um <clears throat> and i and i do think like a lot of the medical providers understand and have narcan on like with them mm -hmm. and also they probably need more yeah yeah. Um, and that it should be readily available and the government should just be providing Narcan to us. Yeah. Like, I don't, why are you buying things to save people's lives? That's, that's the way <laughs> it is right now. That, I know. Yeah. It's, uh, and we've allocated quite a bit of money yeah. in order to, to, to do what we can, mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, what, you know? from your heart Rita and with the wisdom and you know that that you've that you've gained from your heart how do we how do we come home to who we are so that we can really serve in a way that is not judgmental that it really is an extended invitation for people. Does that question make sense? Mm -hmm. I think about that question a lot, so mm -hmm. it may not even make sense the way I'm asking it, but. Yeah, my partner and I talk a lot about how important like youth are. Mm. Because when you think about kids, they're so attuned to nature and like other human beings. Um, and we see it like in teenagers also, they begin to create their chosen family when they hit their teen years and, and the teenagers, that, the folks and friends that they spend their most time with become mm -hmm. like their family and their core support system. And something that is so obvious with youth is how, how much they, you know, they focus and see other youth who are struggling and they connect with them mm. like when their friend is struggling it's never they don't usually they don't walk away mm -hmm. they're like hey what's up what's going on you know there's a a connection and an attunement to their friends and like the other folks that they're around so that they have this like innate connection with one another mm-hmm and actually all humans and beings on the planet have an innate connection to one another. And it's actually very unhuman to walk past someone who is struggling and not say something to them. Mm. But as we grow and I can, and I or maybe talk more about myself, like as I have grown, my socialization has been to focus on myself mm -hmm. and not be as open and not be as connected or attuned to the environment and the folks around me. Because somehow if I support others, I cannot also support myself. And so what I, 
what I think a part could be is to feel and reconnect with the younger versions of ourselves mm. and connect more wholly and fully with the folks around us. And I don't mean that just in our chosen or natal family. Right. I mean that in all folks around us. Yeah. To be unwavering in caring for them. Yeah. Period. Not and them meaning them, just anyone. Yeah. Because when humans are truly connected to other humans, that that will save lives. So I what I hear you proposing is that instead of glancing at the ground as I'm walking past someone, and this is just a very simple example, yeah. is that I catch their gaze, smile, and say hello. Yeah. It can begin that simply. It can. It can. Yeah. And it's, I would say, what I, how I am saying it right now feels really simple. Right. And I do think like the action that you're describing, Greg, is really <clears throat> simple. And what I know in my body is there are folks that I feel less comfortable around. Hmm. So like if a tall white man is like interacting with me and I don't have a relationship with him, I can feel intimidated or unsafe. Mm. And so I say it simply and I say it with my full heart and I don't want to discredit the truths of many folks like me who feel inherently safe walking around the world and especially walking around Central Oregon. where That you don't feel inherently safe. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And that... We have many folks here who are, you know, carry around a lot of guns and mm -hmm. have said really harmful things about my lived experience and people who I love and are my family's experience. Mm -hmm. And that is heartbreaking. And, yeah. You know, there there's an organization in town, uh, and I, I won't mention names, but, you know, your um that is there ever a, is there ever fear that when you gather with mm. um i don't even i i'm i'm feeling so ignorant of how to even even express this you know what i mean yeah, like but when you gather uh for an outing specifically related to um your, your sexual identity or, or how you walk in the world and identify that that is different from the typical, you know, white heterosexual person that has a really strong opinion that that's the only way it ought to be. Yeah. Is there ever concern that as, as you have a gathering and a collective that there may be you know, the opportunity for violence or to, to be in danger. And do you feel it more when you're in a, in a gathering? Yeah. I mean, I think that there is inherently a lack of safety because you're in a bigger group and often mm. they're very like public and mm -hmm. folks could show up. 
and there's been an increase in violence overall mm-hmm. um, across the world. And so, yes, and uh, I, when m- me, when given the choice between like building community mm-hmm. or not going, building community is most important mm. to me. Yeah. I also have factors in my life that allow me to feel that way. Um, like being a mixed Filipino, um, I can blend, I, I can't blend in, but there are, I hold other privileges, mm. um, which makes it a little bit easier for me to navigate. Um, and I know it's a risk and I, you know, I, I ground and take deep breaths and, Mm -hmm. and still show up. Yeah. Um, where other folks may not feel, Mm. um, comfortable doing that. And I completely respect that decision. Yeah. You know, Jennifer and I and our, our board and, and the people that, are part of the Shreeponia community. Um, the reason that this is not off topic where we've gone mm-hmm. is because recovery is, it's, it's very evident and it's traditionally spoken of regarding, mm-hmm. um, regarding substance, mm-hmm. but, but the, but the desperate need to recover from the white, uh, psychology of, um, yeah. White you supremacy. Know, white supremacy and the and the white privilege, mm-hmm. the whiteness. Yeah. Um, you know, I uh, you gave Jennifer a book mm-hmm. called uh, "My Grandmother's Hands." Yeah. Um, profound. Yeah. You know, profound to become aware of just inherent in our psychology and in our culture. Mm. Um, and the opportunity, it's like the time is now, mm-hmm. if not now, when the time is now, then the time is now. And this is because the, the type of addiction and the type of recovery you and I were familiar with when we walked into the rooms of 12 step were for individuals yep. to start to get sober, to begin to reclaim their lives. Mm -hmm. And that's a metaphor for, and a microcosm for, for our culture, not only our country, but globally. I mean, this, the, the level of insanity and the, the, so the, you know, it's amazing that individuals getting sober, um, it, that's not enough anymore. No. It's, it's not even enough in the substance that any of us would choose to put in our bodies that have created that condition mm-hmm. um, is but a symptom, as we say. Yeah. It's a symptom of, of what's occurring in our culture. Yeah. Um, mm. How do you go about offering experience, strength, and hope for those more collective issues, those more collective, you know, urgent things that need to transform. 
god i mean so much um but a huge part begins with educating yourself and having really in-depth conversations with folks around you mm-hmm. um and really understanding where you fall in privilege and understanding where other folks fall in privilege mm-hmm. um and then the importance of understanding impression oppression and how pervasive oppression has been um historically and also right now um and after kind of a as in depth as you can in that moment understanding right we talk about in recovery uh you do the best that you can mm-hmm. when you start to do the work and then you can always come back and do a little bit more. yeah exactly yeah um <laughs> the and, layers of the onion yep just keep getting peeled yeah and so um navigating kind of all of those pieces and then you begin to bring your understanding of privilege and impression oppression into action and i really that can look in many different ways and so Mm. like what you're talking about greg in talking about the recovery of this culture that has been oppressed and also been the oppressor and Mm -hmm. how do they continue to move through the world and also heal themselves and Mm -hmm. that feels like something a way to bring it into action um for me the way that it shows up in my life is understanding my lineage better um showing up and supporting other folks who have shared identities with me and also Mm. in identities that i do not have Mm -hmm. um it also means uh, that I teach and I sp- speak with integrity as best that I can in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, for a lot of white, white-bodied folks, it's about giving your privilege away. Wow. Speak to how that can be done. <sighs> yeah. I mean, I feel like it's different for yeah, all, all white sure. folks. And I would never tell anyone. How, I mean how to or how not to but Mm -hmm. it comes with a deep understanding of like how white-bodied folks have inherently harmed black and brown brown brown-bodied folks for a really 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 long time Mm -hmm. um and so it's about learning that and navigating that and navigating the guilt and shame and violence that you have perpetuated and then choosing a different path Mm -hmm. in life yeah you know that what you just said um, could be really threatening. Oh yeah, to white-bodied folks. <laughs> yeah, I like, bet it is. Like own own the guilt. However, the corollary, the 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 relationship to what you and I have walked through. One of the one of the most critical elements of you and I sitting here this many years late, uh, beyond our last drink or drug, is because we were called to do exactly Mm -hmm. that at an individual level. Yeah. We were called to to rigorous honesty. We were called to looking the demons Mm. in the scorched earth of our lives full on and not turn away. So I, that, that's, that gets to be the message for, for the collective as well. That, um, that the time is now it, it's time, you know, for for those of us that have a voice that are beginning to wake up. And I and I, you know, I had a beautiful teacher of the Bhagavad Gita begin when he would begin to to teach. 
every each session that we all gather together, he would always say, before I begin, please forgive me because I'm sure that I will offend you. Mm-hmm. It's not my intention. And so I, you know, I'm really aware that, that, that because of my ignorance and because of the blindness that I've walked in, in my own life in, uh, and I'm, I'm a representative of, of white privilege. You know, I, I'm a representative of that. I'm not a rich white man, but I've enjoyed privilege as a result of Mm -hmm. the color of my skin and the way I speak. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. And it's, it, it is, you know, to have the voice to invite other people to consider their past regardless of how painful it might be to own the fact that even this country was built on absolute oppression period yeah so uh yeah 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 i really feel like that folks get an opportunity every day to unlearn the things that they don't need to bring forward in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I was having a difficult conversation earlier this weekend and the person, the white bodied person described a lot of like fear and anxiety. Um, and I'm like, yeah, you can be fearful and anxious. And also like you have the tools to regulate yourself and do Mm -hmm. the work that you need to do. So your fear and anxiety is not something that makes you act out of alignment of the values you're describing to me. Mm. So I encourage you to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Person in personal responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. can, we can have our feelings and then we get to choose action Yeah. at some point. Yeah. Especially for folks who have like more privilege and more access yeah. to, you know, ha- you know, be able to seek out like therapy, support, um, financial privilege, housing stability, mm-hmm. financial stability overall. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you go and seek the things that you need to regulate. Mm-hmm. And so that your fear, anxiety that can also cause violence, whether it's verbal or physical or emotional, mm-hmm. um, doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and what you said, Greg, like, and learn how to apologize and do differently, mm-hmm. and start today. Yeah, start right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I say it callously, a little bit, and only because fierce love is so important. Mm. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and like, there's like, n- there's no time to waste. No. Yeah. No. And I, and I don't say it as a, and I don't say any of these comments out of, um, out of like judgment or inability. I say them fiercely because they're important for saving Mm. people's lives. And Mm. like, that's my goal. And I imagine it's the goal of others. Mm. Well, I think we're getting close to probably needing to land the plane. Definitely. So I, um, yeah, I just want to, Sriponya has, is, is a word that 
is two words that are brought together from two different languages. Mm. The first is Sanskrit. Shri is a Sanskrit word meaning beautiful. Mm. The next word is a Swahili word. Ponya is a, is a uh, Swahili word that means cure or healing. So together, you know, our heart in the matter and walking in the world is, is, is to walk together. Mm-hmm. All of us walk together toward a beautiful healing. And how do you see yourself and how would you invite people into a life of living that way. I think um, my understanding of healing until this last year has been like really soft and really gentle. And I think that there is a aspect of healing that is like soft and inviting. And I'm like imagining those like really fluffy blankets that are just like texturally so um they're encompassing Mm, mm -hmm. and so like I think that's sometimes my initial invitation the other part of like beautiful healing is this vigor and intensity Mm. um of doing yeah yeah and so to invite others into a place of like beautiful healing I think about inviting like both of those pieces and interweaving them together. Mm. Not that it's like dualism or binary that we get to both be gentle and fierce. We both get, we get to be soft and vigorously choose. Oh, I love that. Oh, oh yeah. And I want, I want everyone to get to be there because the folks in my life that are really important. I just want them all, all to get to come. Yeah. Rita, thank you so much. Mm, thank you. Yeah. I love you. <laughs> I, <laughs> I love just you too. really love you. So if you're open to it, let's do this again down the road. Sounds good. All right. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Greg.